Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me grace today as I speak to your people. Uh, What we're going to cover today, Lord, is at the center of the Christian faith. It is the love that comes from you resonating in your people, given from us to us as we function as satellites. Lord, we pray your forgiveness for the many times when we have not done this well. God, we pray that we would fulfill the words of our Lord that our greatest testimony to a lost and dying world would be the way that we love each other. Pray that you give us grace as we discern from your word how better to do this practically and spiritually. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Last time I spoke to you, I mentioned that I intended to address with you then the verdict that was passed down from Peter and James on that most uh, seminal element of the Christian faith, which is how we are saved from the wrath of God. But instead, we took a hopefully helpful detour. We uh, defined ecumenical councils based upon the first of them, which obviously occurs in our text in Acts 15. Well, this time I will fulfill what I intended to do last time. But before we get into the judgment that was issued, let us re-familiarize ourselves with the circumstances that preceded and necessitated the Jerusalem Council, even if ever so briefly, and indeed it will be brief. We'll simply accomplish this by re-reading with you the first seven verses of Acts 15. Then after that, I will introduce the body of this sermon with some what I hope to be uh, helpful preface. And then we'll work through the remaining verses phrase by phrase. So look again uh, for the last time, Acts 15, starting in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter, 
After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and we are going to pause before we get into once more what he did say to them so that I can explain a bit about that before we get there so that you have the understanding that I think you need. As I have indicated in passing in previous addresses, the judgment that is given by Peter and James consists of two parts. And the first is doctrinal, the second is practical, but with that second part, there is one caveat to that, and I'll explain that when we get there. But recognizing this distinction between doctrine and practice is critical for many reasons. One of the chief reasons is that practice may be expedient for a time, but if that time passes away, it may cease to be so, and thus a given practice may be turned away from, apart from any sin being committed, if indeed that has been abrogated by the clear command of God. Uh, Circumcision is a great example of this, one that we've dealt with numerous times in this book, and we still are, obviously, in our passage. Levitical dietary laws, the same thing. They were very useful for a time because they facilitated the holiness of God's people in that they functionally uh, kept them away from meaningful fellowship with pagan nations. But in contrast to practices rooted in doctrine, Christian doctrines themselves are eternal, and as such, they may never be turned away from. We'll come back to this, but with those basics understood, let's look first to the doctrine handed down by Peter and James, which is again eternally binding. Pick up in verse 7 as we continue on. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did also to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter here is simply pointing out that based upon their ancestral record as well as their records individually, uh, they've not kept the law of God in the way that even they needed to. In all of the particulars, dietary laws, all the rest, certainly the meaningful matters, the most meaningful matters, In fact, in the Old Covenant, they did this so poorly that uh, that relationship resulted in a writ of divorce being handed to them by God. So to continue to rely upon these things is folly, considering that nobody's ever been faithful enough to really be able to rely upon them in the practice of these. And so to put this burden upon the Gentiles would also be folly with a little bit of hypocrisy added in to boot. But continuing in verse 11, Peter makes that grand pronouncement that we have emphasized so many times, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now we are going to stop again here. Because at this point, moving forward, we're going to break from the doctrinal discussion. And the reason for that is because in this transitional period in the life of the church, which is covered in the book of Acts, God's people have an additional, though secondary, means of validating truth. And that is miracles. And while there are two primary parties driving this debate, on the one side the Judaizers, on the other side Paul and Barnabas, only one of these parties has had their teaching validated by miracles, and it is not the heretical Judaizers. Verse 12 speaks to this, All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I have told you numerous times as we move through this book that there is a reason why 
the modern day YouTube thing of pretending to grow somebody's legs on the street and calling it a miracle of God does not work. Okay? It's because signs and wonders have to be real. They have to be undeniable. God gives them to validate truth. They have to be falsifiable. Truth given here and truth received. God did not give this kind of power to false teachers. So Paul and Barnabas' point in bringing these up in relation to the ministry that they have with the Gentiles is that they are not false teachers overseeing false churches. They are true teachers. And thus the Gentiles have been converted by the truth and are truly converted. Verse 13 continues and gives way to the greatest means of validating truth, which is, of course, God's Word. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So again, the doctrine is grace alone, which as previously noted is really Christ alone, as grace is a mechanism of Christ to save, same is true of faith as well. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this doctrinal portion of their judgment, and that is not because it is not important, certainly, or even as important as the practical instruction handed down by James. Grace alone is, in fact, far more important than what is coming next. But we have already spent much time on this in many sermons, especially if you recall when we addressed the perspective of the saints in Antioch. We addressed this doctrine as well as the effect that it has on the souls of God's people when it is truly understood. But here what I want to stress to you is that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's going to be as true 10,000 years from now with you and I and all of us as it is today, as it was 2,000 years ago when Peter said it. Man was created to need grace. Always. He was never going to outgrow this. He was never going to become autonomous. And you can see this in many respects in Scripture, but consider the creation account and the provision of a tree of life, which would have been the means of the preservation of Adam had he not sold us all into sin. You can also see this because there is a tree of life once more in Revelation chapter 22, signifying our ongoing need of the Lord's provision. Consider also that Christ replaces the Son And as by the providence of God, we read in the Psalms uh, this afternoon, just earlier, Son is essential to all of life and sustaining all of life. Ergo, grace is forever. The sustaining power of God is forever. Because our need for grace is forever. I.e., saving grace is eternally efficacious. Now understand that the means of salvation by grace was accomplished on the cross. So the necessary atonement was provided. It was complete in every respect. But saving grace is still sustained in the present and future and for all eternity by the one who rose victoriously over the cross. Such that the answer to the following questions is the same in every instance, and it is grace. 
What were you saved by at the moment of your conversion? Grace. What are you being saved by now? Grace. What will you be saved by when you are taken from this life into uh, eternity? Grace. But also think about this. Eons after the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, when you and I have been singing with all the saints and the host of heaven for so long we can't even remember, worthy is the Lamb. What will be saving you then? Still the grace of God. So that the truth of Acts 15.11, stated by Peter, supported by James, built upon the promises of Amos, Jeremiah, and Moses in the text, and many more left unreferenced by James, has no expiration date. And I raise this point for a couple of reasons. First off, I raise it because I hope it will comfort and encourage your souls. I trust that it does. But I also raise it to draw a contrast between the doctrine of grace and the terms of Jew-Gentile fellowship, which we will consider now. Jew-Gentile and now Christian fellowship. Although these practical concerns are not directly eternal truths, Uh, and thus they will not last forever, they are the application of an eternal truth, and that eternal truth is brotherly love. Continue with me in verse 19. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now before we get into the implications of this, let us make sure that we understand the particulars. And we will address these in the order that they were given to us by the text. First term of fellowship given is abstention from things contaminated by idols. This of course refers to meat that had been previously offered to idols, but then after that made its way to the marketplace and could be purchased for consumption. With this, please note first that James and Paul and even James and Peter have very different perspectives on this. Truly. They're not the same. They're not all towing exactly the same line here. Paul, for example, has total liberty in this area. If you've read 1 Corinthians 8, you know this. Peter, if I can offer an opinion, I think when he is not constrained by the need to protect his testimony to the Jews, is probably pretty loose with this as well. There were a number of indications, not just uh, post-Cornelius. Even prior to that, Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner. I mentioned to you in passing then that a lot of Jews wouldn't have even been comfortable staying in that home because of the way that Tanners handled animals commonly. He wasn't staying in the same room necessarily, but I think he's probably pretty free with this. I do not believe that is the case with James. If you have read the book of James, you know uh, He is a different kind of preacher. He has processed the Christian faith in an orthodox way, but differently. He is apparently much more austere in certain respects, and that, by the way, makes him a very good pastor for these particular people in Jerusalem. He is a reflection of them. They are a reflection of him. This is where they're at as a group, as elders, And as laity, and as long as they all understand that these are practical issues and not sin issues in the truest sense, then fine. Unity is not uniformity, and we'll touch on that again. Having said this, though, there's no contradiction to what Paul taught the Corinthians in terms of the pronouncement of James. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 4, and ultimately will go as far as verse 13. 
Paul says, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So eating meat sacrificed to idols as an isolated issue is not sin. That is the settled truth on the matter. That settled truth is not mitigated against by anything that James has laid down in Acts 15 because the decree in Acts 15 is the truth about the terms of fellowship, which is a different matter. And on this matter, he and Paul completely agree, continuing in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, by the way, this was a different matter, and he addresses this. I'm not going to go into all that. But continuing, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So while I do not believe that Paul and James are in lockstep on all the minutia of the Old Covenant and the resolution of it, they do both understand what needs to happen to preserve fellowship and unity in the present and near future. And most certainly that is not mixing meat sacrificed to idols and meals with believing Jews. Next, there is a prohibition against fornication in the text. And if, if you recall, I mentioned there was one caveat to the practical nature of this second portion. This is it. This is obviously not something that is going to pass away, uh, that will be abrogated, that has been abrogated. We cannot fornicate now. To this day, we have never been able to do this. So the question is, why are they raising this? Is there something in the Antioch church of which they have heard that gives them reason to raise this? As far as I am aware, there is not. Could be. I don't know. Um, but if you recall, this is not simply a response to the Antiochian believers, is it? It is an ecumenical council or a universal council. So they are addressing all issues with all Gentile believers, period. And to go back to the Corinthian epistles, if you have read these, you know full well that there is a reason to be concerned about fornication amongst the Gentiles in general. Coming from their pagan religions, they have a very laissez-faire attitude about sexuality. They do not understand it as a part of a covenant. They have brought some of those practices into Christianity, and they have to be taught very carefully what sex means and how they are to use it, how God views it. So for that reason, they make the connection here. Also, the eating of meat as a part of religious ceremonies and eating in those pagan temples often led to sexual immorality because they were temple prostitutes there. So there's a connection there as well. Finally, though, they are to abstain from things strangled and from blood. Things strangled have blood in the meat. And then on top of that, you would also just have them drinking the blood itself outright. 
Uh, the reason why believing Jews would not have accepted this is twofold. First off, you have a connection uh, to then modern day paganism. And that was that pagans in worship services would frequently drink the blood of various different animals with the belief that they were imbibing somehow the life and the spirit. And this was all very religious and mystical and idolatrous. So they wanted no part of that. But if you recall, all the way back to the Noahic covenant, there is another reason. Indeed, there were a number there. But religiously speaking and spiritually speaking, and most importantly, Jews did not consume blood because they were taught by God to have a different relationship with it, to understand that there was something sacred in blood, not in the truest sense, in the sign that comes from animals, in the truest sense, in the substance that would ultimately come from Christ. But they were taught through this to respect this because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So the idea is that through those signs, they would appreciate the substance more so they don't drink blood from that angle either, and if you did that in front of them, you would have offended them deeply. So these things understood, obviously much deference is paid to the Jews. But as a thought exercise, I'd like us to consider alternate possibilities. What if, say, Peter and James, or Peter overriding James, would have prescribed a different resolution? Well, if so, there are a couple of possibilities that I will raise to you because in the consideration of these, I think we'll learn a lot about how we are to view and treat each other within the body of Christ and how we are most certainly not to. Along these lines, possibility number one, again, this is in an alternate universe. What if Peter had just said to the Jewish believers some variation of why don't you get over yourselves? Wheels of progress are moving. They are moving forward you people will let go of your antiquated notions of religion. Do you not remember the whole thing with the sheep descending and I related to you the vision? It's done. Let it be done. The signs are no longer in effect. The substance has come. Move on. From 1,500 years of tradition, move on. You will do so by force. You will leave all of these things behind the end. What would be the consequences of him treating them like this? Well, first off, it would violate the consciences of the believing Jews, which is a huge problem in the Christian faith. Some years ago, we had a couple people in the congregation who were turned around on issues of Christian liberty. And so if you recall, it broke from our regular book study and I took, I think, a couple months at least to go through chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians and explain matters of Christian liberty. And I wanted to establish the truth, but I also wanted to explain to you the role of conscience in our faith and how through conscience, that which is not sin by its own nature can actually become sin if the person that is uh, taking whatever action you're talking about believes it to be sin. And if you remember this, you get a lot of extra points. I don't know how many, but a lot, because it's been a long time. But I used illustration of a frat house. And frat house has all these rooms, and, and college students stay in them, and they're their own rooms, but then there are common spaces as well. 
and you would have the kitchen, certainly, you'd have the dining room, you'd have a living room, obviously. And I said, now imagine that there were a student and he or she wakes up and their dog tired and uh, they're late for class, so they're running out the door, but they realize that they don't even have enough money for the day's coffee. Then they see a stack of ones sitting somewhere in one of these common spaces, a shelf, on a table, whatever, and they know it's not theirs, but they take it. They have stolen. But then a few hours go by and they're sitting in a lecture that they're not really paying attention to, but the fog of the night's sleep has begun to wear off sufficiently to where they remember, wait a minute, that actually was my money. I put it there the other day when I got home from work. I just, in my exhaustion, forgot. I have stolen nothing. Does it then follow that in that moment when they took that money, they did not sin? No, it does not. They did not sin against any individual because there was no individual to sin against. They misunderstood that part of it. They had not stolen from someone inasmuch as they cannot steal from themselves. But in their hearts, they sinned against God. That is something of the way that conscience works. It draws lines. And whether or not those lines are explicitly ordered by God, if they are crossed, that will dull our consciences to the lines that actually have been drawn by God. And so that which is not sin that has become sin if you keep breaching that, if you keep violating that, will teach you to sin moving forward in issues that actually are sin. But in addition to what it would have done to their consciences, it also would have prevented them from meaningful evangelism to their lost family and friends. This cuts them off. There is no Jew who rejects Christ who is going to break bread with people who are not circumcised and do not observe the law of Moses when it comes to dietary laws. And, you know, in our day, fellowship largely depends on eating because we need food. In their day, more so. And in their day, they didn't have the options that we have. If somebody, you know, if I, if I linger at somebody's house for five hours and we're talking about spiritual things, I can, on my way home, stop and get some fast food that will slowly kill me and is cumulatively over time. But nevertheless, I have that option so I can relieve that hunger. For them, they are preparing meals all day long. They are at some distance away from wherever they live. They don't have that option. They have to eat with each other if they're going to have substantive conversations. So if you're telling them that they cannot observe these practices of their forefathers, you are cutting them off from their family members and their friends, and they are now no longer able to seek in a meaningful way the salvation of those they love most. You, Christian, if you were put in that position, how would that go over with you? Not well. Furthermore, if this were to occur, it would be Peter issuing this non-resolution in opposition to James because this certainly wouldn't have come from him. And so you'd have Peter overriding one of the primary elders there in Jerusalem. And if this happens, what happens to the relationship between Peter and James? Look, none of these men that we're dealing with are shrinking violence. None of them. We're not used to men like this because we don't have many men like this anymore, but they don't do this. They're not going to roll over if it actually matters. James is the pastor of these people, and he loves his people. All that we said of Paul with the Antioch believers, it is true of James as well. You weren't going to run 
over Paul's church. The people that Paul had brought into the faith, the people that Paul had loved into the faith. You're not going to run over the same with James. But do you know the biggest problem? What that would be with just leaving tire tracks on these people? Just running them right over? It's not any conflict that you would have had with their pastors or them. It's the fact that you'd be standing before the Christ who bought them with his blood, giving an explanation of why you thought food mattered more than their souls. How do you think that meeting's going to go? Lord Jesus still bears as trophies on his body the marks that he received on the cross. And you are unwilling to sacrifice something trivial for the sake of those sheep that he loved enough to sacrifice everything for? Good grief. If I had warned you against that and I was somehow privy to that conversation, even I would not be willing to say then, I told you so. On account of what you will receive from the Lord Jesus having taken that position. And though a modern parallel is not exactly possible, because these circumstances typically don't exist anymore. We do have modern parallels, don't we? We have those Christians that absolutely must drink an adult soda in front of other Christians. And I've been clear about the fact that wine, beer, it's not sin. But you had better believe if you do that in front of somebody knowing that it offends them, you are sinning. For what? For nothing. For nothing for your own comfort, for your own indulgence. And we have many issues like that. We have whole movements that are built upon that sort of thing. Taking liberties. The theonomists, the postmillennialists do this especially. They are redeeming culture. So often, though, the redemption of culture tends to look a lot more like sanctifying sin. They take things they know full well are offensive to many, many people, alcohol being one of them. We don't care. We don't care that numerous people have destroyed themselves doing this. We don't care that they've watched their family members destroy themselves doing this. We're going to do it anyways. We don't care. We're also going to swear we don't care about that. We're going to take that aspect of the culture back. I think it's going to be a bad day for you when you stand before the Lord Jesus having affirmed your rights over any kind of care of his sheep. So possibility number one would seem to be a loser. What about possibility number two? Because there is a ditch on the other side of the road. Well, possibility number two is to acquiesce on all points except doctrine and to impose upon the Gentiles all aspects of traditional Jewish religious practice. So you might say to make Judaism great again. Well, in this scenario, by your love for each other, all men will know that you are my disciples is perhaps, and I think likely, the justification for applying to the Gentiles the requirements that they be circumcised and observe all of the Levitical dietary laws at all times. Although it would, of course, be understood that none of these practices were necessary for salvation, they would still be taken as necessary for sanctification in that they are needed to preserve the unity of the church. And after all, what Christian wouldn't do that? A Christian wouldn't want that. What would be the consequences of taking this tack? Well, same as they were with the Jews when the shoe was on the other foot with a couple of additional issues, I think, added as well. 
Firstly, this could potentially also create a conflict of conscience in them because it seems to me unlikely that Paul has not already taught them that it was for liberty that Christ set them free and this would possibly confuse that. Next, they too would lose the capacity for meaningful fellowship with their unbelieving loved ones and thus also the ability to meaningfully evangelize them because they are not going over to their loved ones' houses to eat if they eat kosher because they will not be able to eat anything with them. So as it was with the Jews, it is now with them. Also, even if it were possible for them to eat kosher, it would be barely possible. Jerusalem as an infrastructure, because they have a large enough percentage of the population that is Jewish, they have markets that are dedicated to this. They don't have the same thing in other places in ancient Asia Minor where pagans primarily reside. Also, this puts a financial burden on them, I would think. It seems logical to me in that I would suppose that Meat that is not fresh because it has been sacrificed to idols costs less than meat that is fresh and also meat that was handled in a certain way. So when you think about the poor members of the Antioch church, you placed that load upon them as well. So far we just dealt with food. Let's say that they impose circumcision. Western men blissfully do not remember their circumcisions because this occurred while we were still in the hospital. They will remember this if this happens. They will very much remember it. And you're talking about surgeries. You have the possibility of people getting infections and all of that. That is a huge, huge, profound sacrifice. And if you impose these things, you'd also have the same kind of conflict with Paul because of them that you would have had with James. The same... Uh, inevitable confrontation with Christ on account of the way that you had treated the Gentiles. And finally, and this is a point that you must not miss when you're dealing with people, you would turn the weaker brother into the tyrannical brother and render the stronger brother a slave to the preferences of the weaker brother instead of them being a slave of Christ. And we'll delve a little bit more into that before we're through. But I do hope that that little exercise helps you see something of the wisdom of the actual judgment and that it brings both parties to the center. Now, Christianity is not a tit-for-tat religion. We shouldn't approach mediation with an attitude of you'll get yours if I get mine. But if you only defer to one side of a conflict on issues of preference, you're going to disenfranchise that one side because you are doing what Proverbs prohibits, which is using the unequal scales that God hates. You are being a respecter of persons and a respecter of some persons and not others, even though all the persons that are involved when we're talking about the church are blood-bought saints. And you will also, as a result, turn the party that sacrifices nothing into ungrateful, unbearable despots. There is a difference between loving people in a way that teaches them to, in turn, also love others and appeasing the proverbial angry man as well. Taking that selfish person, giving them all that they want all the time makes them angry when they do not get those things and you will have to continue that process or otherwise you will deal with their wrath. Every Christian is commanded to practice brotherly love, not just the stronger brother. And it is not wisdom to appease every non-doctrinal desire of anyone. And this took me some time to learn as a pastor 
I am by nature, when it comes to practical considerations, a pretty conciliatory person. I just don't really care that much. And so if somebody would come to me and they'd say, I think that this can run better. I prefer that this run differently. For the most part, I was happy to go along with that. But then I did in time realize there were different sorts of people who would do this sort of thing. There were the people who had like one or two things and we all have one or two things, so that's fine. And so you do this and they feel loved and they feel heard and they feel respected and if it's a good idea, the body is benefited. And then there are people who don't have one or two things because they have one or two hundred things. And the things that they have seem to fall more into the category of quantity than quality, like they haven't really thought much about these things. And it's just an issue of imposing their will. I have learned not to give these people runway. Because when they gain a head of steam, they start to really tear people up around them. But it is not just me who needs to learn these lessons. Some of us are extremely selfish people. All of us are selfish, though, to some degree. And so it is an essential good for our souls to be in an environment that we are totally committed to, that we aren't just going to walk away from, but one in which we do not always get our way. Because the Spirit of God uses this to train us to see people as souls for whom Christ died rather than just bad ideas walking around living and breathing or embodied impediments to our agendas. People are our agenda. Souls are our agenda. We, as Christ's body, are an organism that makes disciples. And so, although as an organizational issue, we have processes and procedures, and we have non-mandatory practices, none of these processes or practices are more important than the people that they exist to serve. None of them. I try to make this clear to people. When they engage for the first time, in some way in public ministry. I've had many people that are about to teach for the first time or about to preach for the first time that have come up from this church or about to uh, play a musical instrument or, or, or lead in music or do something like that or teach a Bible study that they're having people over to. I've had them express their nervousness. Well, I do this week in and week out, so I haven't been nervous for, for a while, but I do remember and I respond to them in the same way. I say, brother or sister, you're with people who love you. These people are not more concerned with what you're about to produce than they are with you. And I say that to help relieve their concerns. Does it work? I don't think so. Most of the time it doesn't, does it? I mean, you've been on the receiving end of that. You just continue on being nervous. But at least intellectually, that gives you the tools to deal with that. And it takes time usually for your souls to catch up. But people matter more than process. And that's revealed in the resolution that James lays down. If that is not true for you, though, you're in sin. And if this is not true for you, you will, and I am sure are, sinning against others in this congregation. And the sin that you're committing, you need to understand, you learned it from the pagans, you didn't learn it from Christ. You may have noticed that the political and demonic left has essentially no divergent views. They all walk in absolute lockstep. There's no like fixed general framework with an allowance uh, for disparate views on matters of conscience. They exercise total ideological dominance. 
They're like a flock of geese. They all turn together every single time. They can hold one view one day and then turn 180 degrees the next day, all in unison, down to the man and the woman. And they will now doggedly defend what they condemned in some instances the day prior. And this is why Satan is so formidable. Don't remember the exact quote from Spurgeon on this, but I do remember him lamenting that the people of God were not nearly as united as the children of the devil. But this isn't actually unity, really. It's uniformity. And how is this uniformity achieved? Well, the answer is by force. Turns out people don't actually change core beliefs in 24 hours. They're just confessing now what they don't actually believe, and they're doing so under duress because they understand that they will be destroyed if they don't. God forbid that we operate in this way. And if we understand the scriptures, we won't because we'll recognize that Christian unity is not uniformity. This has been expressed with the concept of a closed hand and an open hand by many different people. In the closed hand, we have the things we will not let go of. We have uh, the deity of Christ. We have the Trinity. We have sola scriptura. We have grace alone. I have faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. And we'll fight for what's in this hand. And we'll fight hard, and we won't let any person back us down. I mean, think about justification. I will fight tooth and nail over justification. I will not let that issue go. If you want it to leave the conversation, it'll be you who leaves. It won't be me who at any point stops talking, but that's not in contradiction to anything that I'm saying. First off, we fight for that to the glory of God because I'm not going to let somebody demean my Savior by saying that he doesn't save. But second, who are the ones who are justified by faith? We are. So if we lose that doctrine, then we lose salvation, so that is still about that person. I am still preferring that person. With the open hand, and things that we can disagree with across denominations and even in the same church. You ought to be more concerned with losing your brother than you are with winning that argument. I am not saying that you should not affirm the truth. The truth about meat sacrifice to idols was affirmed clearly out loud in an epistle that everybody had read in front of them. That's the truth. But I'm not going to fight for that truth the same way that I am with the things that are in the closed hand. I'm not going to risk destroying you in order to win the argument because if I do that, man, have I completely lost the plot. It is okay to disagree upon matters that occupy that open hand. And in fact, it's not okay to not at some point in a fallen world. The only way you're going to have that kind of uniformity in this kind of a church, in any church, is if you have some situation of man worship or groupthink. Because that's just not the way people work. In cults, people work like that. In local churches where there's brotherly love, this doesn't work like that. I don't even want that at all. I have ideas that are wrong. If I knew that they were wrong, I would have set them aside. I don't know that they're wrong. I'm just not arrogant enough to think that they're not there. And I'm learning and I'm growing. And you're learning and you're growing. 
we can disagree on minor issues. The world doesn't operate that way again. They shun those who dissent even on these. We do not. Nor, by the way, do we accuse these people that we disagree with who are in the body of Christ uh, being stupid or being evil. We don't accept them in the way that the village accepts the village idiot or in the way that self-righteous people accept their moral inferiors. We are to love them and to value them and to listen to them. And by the way, if you do, you might also just discover that they understand more than you've given them credit for. I remember growing up and I remember the old fuddy-duds. And they would talk about things like, you know, I just don't think that young people should dye their hair platinum blonde. I don't think that's a good thing. And I would think, well, you know, whatever. You stodgy old person, who cares? Now, looking back, they were completely right. What they were unable to do is succinctly connect the teachings of Scripture to their conclusion, but they were intuitively responding to those things. What is modesty? Just to delve into this example. When I was a kid, I thought that modesty was just a woman wearing a low-cut shirt. It's not. It's anything that detracts from the glory of God. And I assure you that a head that is painted platinum blonde in one of the pews in front of you while you're trying to worship is indeed distracting from the glory of God. They were right. They were right to say something about the young women who would wear all black all the time like they were going to a funeral. Turns out the way that you represent yourself externally does reflect what's going on internally. This is just an example. Oh, lots of people who I gave no credence to. But then I leaned in and spoke to them and recognized there was more there than I thought. They weren't dumb. They weren't bad. And you can't treat people for whom Christ has died like that. You have to love people where they are. And if you love people where they are, then very often you'll be able to move them because they will recognize that you care more about them than you do outcomes. And the outcome that you care most about is their spiritual well-being. Do you understand? I hope that you do. Because we're all going to stand before the Lord who bought all of us and we're all going to be given an account for the way that we spoke to and dealt with the people for whom he died. And as your brother and your pastor, I hope that is a good day for you and not a bad one. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you don't know this love that comes from him that is reflected by us, I call you to come to him now. And if you have seen in us, as I am sure you have, if you have been here long enough in all of us, shortcomings in this respect, you need to know that those are ours and not his. That was me failing. That wasn't him. He is everything that he is supposed to be. And these pale reflections from person to person, they are totally and completely and perfectly fulfilled in him. And if you want that love, and of course you would, then come to the Lord Jesus today. Trust in his perfect life, his sufficient death, and the power of his resurrection. And we pray that you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We pray that you give us grace to better love each other. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your people in the first century. 
who recognized that people matter more than preferences and accommodated people in a way that respected where they were while still not sacrificing any cardinal truths or any truth at all. We praise you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.